This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hello, Bali. Welcome to the Mile High Fi podcast. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And today we have a very special guest. We have Amy Minkley, who is founder of FI Freedom Retreats. She found hope in the financial independence movement after burnout in Asia. She quit her job, moved to Bali, and is now sharing the message of purposeful living through transformational FI retreats. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to open with how you discovered fire. This is a pretty cool story and relates back to the some prominent people in the FI movement. What happened there? Um, sure. I was in the midst of burnout. Um, I was an overworker, an oversaver, coming from a money wound from childhood. So irrational with money, not a healthy <laughs> place. Um, and I was in my job, you know, just spending a lot of weekends and evenings working and um, hit a point of desperation and some depression and anxiety where I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, anxious. And on one of these late night internet searches thinking, what can I do? This is not sustainable. You know, I, I Googled about, you know, early retirement, you know, um, how much money do I need to retire, that kind of thing. And I, I came across a video of Pete and, you know, riding his bicycle in Longmont, talking about saving, being an aggressive saver, which I already was um, from that childhood wound. Um, but also him talking about how much money do you actually need to retire? What is your enough? And that was like a life raft for me. It gave me a sense of possibility, a light at the end of the tunnel, and I became a fire evangelist, <laughs> like many people in the Phi community. And I went in the next, I mean, I was i was talking about it regularly with my coworkers. I was living in Bangkok at the time. And I told one of my friends about it. And she says, you know, next week, one of my friends is coming to see me in Thailand. And he knows all about fire. I worked with him in Santiago, Chile at an international school there. And she said, you've got to meet him. And so I ended up meeting Scott Barrett. Brad Barrett's brother in the parking lot of my school in Bangkok, and he told me about Snooze of I podcast. So I just barely, you know, scratched the surface and discovered fire. And then I learned about Shoes of I, and I went down that fire rabbit hole and ingested all the material um, that I could. And so it was really cool to meet Scott Barrett in person and, you know, get that reference and then really discover all the resources that were available in the fire movement. What year was that? That was re pretty recently in 2019. During okay. the midst of the pandemic, yeah, Scott Barrett was taking a year off to travel the world, and I got lucky to meet him. And when did you f see that Mr. Money Mustache video? What year was that? Was that same time. I oh, mean, wow. Just a couple of, like, a, maybe a week before I met him. Okay. So that was really a lucky encounter. That's crazy. And then you, it sounds like you're pretty analytical. Mm -hmm. At least you, you found the information, you started like trying to learn as much as you could. Did you realize that you were already financially independent at that point? You were like, oh, actually, I did a really good job here for the last 20 years or whatever. I think it took me some time. I mean, I, I you know, I was an aggressive saver and I, I had to be an aggressive saver, you know, even in my teens and my college years. Um, because I was very, uh, I had to be financially, my parents weren't supporting me at all. Um, growing up, a lot of it was on, on me to, you know, pay for college and, and buy my first car. And even in high school, I was buying clothes for myself. Um, so it was hard to, to really get that in my head. Like I am okay. I really needed to learn a lot and spend some time and I'm still working on my scarcity mindset. Um, because it's very hard when you're a, a saver to go from saving to suddenly, you know, quitting my job and not have, being able to aggressively save like I did before and spending more money. So I, I'd said, I would say that I'm, you know, it took me some time of really going down that fire rabbit hole to really feel more safe. And I'm still 
still learning. Okay. And you talked about, I guess, some of the symptoms of the money and financial wound uh, growing up. Can you expand on that as much as you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. Um, yeah, my, my family had money when I was a child. And then when I was 12, my dad went through a midlife crisis. He um, unexpectedly, you know, is kind of my parents never fought. And so when, when I was 12 and my dad told me that um, he was leaving and they were getting a divorce, it was a shock for me because they never fought. And my family, my family felt happy and secure. Um, and he was a lawyer. He had money, um, but he, he just, uh, he had a heart issue and he, he had some emotional um, problems. And so he, he really kind of disappeared for a little while. And my mom and I really struggled. We sold our family home. We moved to a new state. My mom went back to college and she was heartbroken during this time. And I became her support system. So she shared a lot of her money concerns with me. And I saw her reading, you know, financial books, just trying to figure out, you know, I kind of, from her perspective, she relied on her husband to um, know about finances. And then when, when my dad left, she, she panicked. And so she was reading all these books. And then I started reading those books in my teens and, um, started aggressively saving when I got my first job and I worked two jobs in high school. So, you know, I really felt like from my experience, my story was money can disappear at any moment. My, my future, you know, my, I can believe that I'm happy and secure and things are safe and then something can suddenly change overnight. And so to be safe, I need to work hard and I need to aggressively save. And, and that's what I did. You know, even in high school, I was there with my calculator, I was making four twenty-five an hour, and you know, calculating again and again, like how much can I, how long do I need to work, and what overtime can I do um, to to buy my first, you know, used car. Um, so I, I learned how to be a good saver, and there were many blessings in that as well. Yeah, I'd like to talk about this a little bit more. Those are some tough experiences. Have you considered what you think your life might have been like? Uh, if you could A-B test your life and your dad would have stayed and you wouldn't have had to struggle, where do you think you would be now? Are, are you grateful for these experiences, even though they were tough? Absolutely. Yes, I am. Um, I'm still healing that relationship with money, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it. I, you know, I mean, I guess I would have balanced a little more because I did overwork for a lot of years and delay gratification to an extreme. Um, so I prefer, you know, a slightly healthier relationship with money, but, you know, I'm sure I would have not been as good of a saver and, you know, maybe, maybe I would have had more fun along the way. So I, I do, I guess I wish it was a little bit more balanced, but I, you know, I have, um, I've healed my relationship with my father. We have a great relationship now. Um, so I don't know that I would have changed things. I feel like there were a lot of blessings, you know, and every, wound there is some some blessing too it's like every rose has its thorn yes. poison. <laughs> you know one of the one of my favorite songs are we gonna break in right now for us maybe maybe <laughs> do you like poison or are you a hair metal fan uh not really but i know that song and i do like that well okay wait <laughs> Doug? Yeah, Doug plays guitar, and you said you wish you would have performed in high school. I see an opportunity right here. Yeah. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just look up the lyrics. You're going to do fine. Okay, so I think we, we definitely got off track from our outline here, but I'll jump in, and I'll give a sneak peek. So we always record a, a sound check, and we play the sound check at the end, and we each talked about our high school experience just a little bit. So that's kind of a transition into, did you go to university? Tell us about that experience you talked about, uh, maybe having to pay for it yourself. Yeah, I really was focused on how can I go for to university and get out debt-free. And, you know, it was cheaper, you know, when I went to school in the late 90s. Um, so that was a, a benefit. Um, but I went to a state school. I was an RA. I worked two jobs. I lived in the crappiest student apartments that I could find. Um, and I, you know, I did get out debt free. It took me five years. Um, but I had a great time and I studied hard because I was paying for, you know, every class. So it motivated me. And, um, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't say that every decision I made was focused on the bottom line because I studied what I loved, which was not a 
very financially savvy choice, maybe. <laughs> but I'm glad that I, I studied history, um, which kind of led me abroad because I, after I graduated, I'm like, what am I going to do with a bachelor's degree in history? And my sister taught English and, you know, overseas in Taiwan. And so that I knew that I could make some money there. And so that led me to go overseas. Why did you pick history? It's often a springboard for some other advanced degrees, right? Yes. I didn't really know. I mean, my, you know, my dad wasn't very actively involved in, in my life at that point. And my mom was just in a panic mode of trying to figure out her life and her retirement. So I didn't really have a lot of guidance for my parents. And I had an amazing professor that inspired me. And so I studied, you know, that was just my passion. And I absolutely loved university. And, you know, I would read history books for fun. And so I am glad that, you know, my parents weren't in the picture saying, like, you need to study something more practical. Uh, because at the end, it worked out for me. And it doesn't always work out for people who study what they love. But, you know, I didn't really have that path forward. I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a PhD in history and work at a university. But I didn't really know the logistics or how hard that was, or um, it wasn't the most logical choice. You know, it's hard to decide what to do at, at that age, but I am glad I studied history. Were, were there any specific areas of history that you specialized in, or you like took a lot of electives in a certain area or region or period of time? I loved it all. Um, I, you know, I studied Chinese history quite a bit, Russian history, um, U.S. history. I, I, I would say yeah, I really loved it all. I mean, I was going to say for a second, you know, I love modern history in the last 100 years or 200 years, but I also love the ancient history, ancient history too. And then I got to teach history in international schools, which was super fun. So in the end, I ended up using my degree, but I didn't have that plan. I kind of stumbled onto it. Who do you think is the most interesting or important historical figure? Oh, man. It's <laughs> such a pretty well. Interesting or important historical figure. Man, I mean, Gutenberg, you know, invented the printing press. That's pretty important and changed the trajectory of history. Um, you know, I love, you know, I lived in India for four years. So, of course, I love Gandhi. Um, and, you know, I mean, Gandhi was the inspiration for Martin Luther King and the nonviolent, you know, movement. So, and um, so, you know, I think Gandhi is such an important figure, too. But. I, you know, I mean, yeah, Magellan, I mean, you know, having the courage to sell around the world, you know, I don't know, I can't even choose because <laughs> there's so many. Yeah. Do you have one in mind, Carl? I was listening to uh, a Dan Carlin podcast. Have you ever listened to that, Amy, the hardcore history or? I have not, okay. but I'm excited to listen to it. He was talking about Gavrilo Princip, who's the guy who assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand, which kicked off World War One. And, and the interesting thing is the original, we're going to go off on a slight tangent here. The original assassination attempt failed. And Gavrilo was just hanging out on a street corner. And uh, the Archduke, his driver, turned on the street. He wasn't supposed to. He made a wrong turn. And Gavrilo sees him there. And the driver sees he made a wrong turn. So he tries to put the thing in reverse and the car stalls out. So then this guy has his chance. He sees him and he assassinates him and his wife. And and that started World War One. So if World War One doesn't happen, the world's completely different. The Middle East looks different. World War II probably wouldn't have happened. And the world would be completely different right now. And, and some people, the counter argument to that is World War One would have happened anyway because there was a lot of tension. And that was just what ignited it, but something else might have ignited it. But it's uh, it's fascinating to think about these little people, and especially that one. If the guy, if the car wouldn't have stalled out, maybe the world would be completely different right now. Yeah, if they would have like changed the spark plugs or something. Yeah, it yeah. Have stalled. Yeah, auto maintenance <laughs> is very important. <laughs> How about you, Doug? Do you have a famous or a favorite historical figure? No, I really. I'd have to think about it. And I'm not like I didn't study history. I, en I enjoy, I took a couple electives in, in history, but yeah, n no one comes to mind. So I would just say something ignorant or try and be funny. So I'll just, I'll pass. <laughs> It'll come off weird. So. Yeah. so, so Amy, how did you end up in Asia? Well, really being, you know, having this history degree and thinking, what do I do now? And I always knew I wanted to um, live abroad. My sister inspired me. She went abroad in the mid-80s to Turkey, to Easter Turkey, rural Turkey from rural Texas. So she was really brave to do that. And I used to get her letters home 
And then she moved to, you know, she lived in Taiwan after she graduated college and went to the UK and lived there for a few years. So she is 10 years older than me. And I used to get those letters home when I was a little girl. So I knew I wanted to do that for a few years, but I never anticipated it being my career. I never anticipated living abroad for the rest of my life. Um, so it was a life-changing experience for me. Um, so yeah, I went to Japan first in 2001, and I was teaching ESL in a Japanese high school, which was super fun. Um, and then it, I stayed four years, not one or two like I anticipated. And then I learned about international schools. And so that, that became a ticket for really saving more money and teaching what I, what I loved, which was history. And what year did you start traveling? Did I miss that? Yeah, so I, I moved abroad in 2001 and stayed in Japan for four years. And then it, it allowed me to save. I didn't save a lot of money, but about $5,000 a year there. Um, but it gave me, you know, a nest egg to take a, a gap year after I left Japan. And I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do now? Because I didn't actually know about international schools until that gap year. I met a woman just by chance who told me, you know, you, you can earn some money teaching ESL, but really, if you want to save, and that was my focus, um, you know, go to international schools. And when I met her, that, you know, that led me on, okay, I need to get my master's in education, my teaching certification, because I didn't need that to teach ESL in Japan. And so I did go back to the U.S., to the University of Oregon. And then immediately my goal was, how can I get abroad again? So I went to Singapore in 2007 and uh, stayed there for six years. And then I went to India for four years. And then I took another gap year. Um, but I don't know if you want me to go into detail about that. But, um, you know, those gap years are so valuable. Um, just meeting that woman and learning about international schools was incredible. And then when I took my second gap year after leaving India, after teaching at international schools, I'd been teaching for 10 years at international schools. That was another pivotal um, moment for me because I it opened my eyes to new possibilities. Got it. And yeah, let's let's talk about the gap years more. And is it fair to classify those as sort of like mini retirements, although maybe you didn't call it that at the time? Definitely. I mean, there's something special about taking time off and um, reflecting on your life and recharging and relaxing in a way that is difficult to do in a two-week holiday. Um, yeah, and I, I really discovered that, you know, after working in international school for 10 years and in Japan for four years teaching ESL, I really realized how unbalanced my life was and how I was still stuck in that pattern of overworking to feel worthy. Um, you know, I had, I was working in elite private schools that were, they were, it was hard to get a job in these schools. And I, I had this major imposter syndrome. And the way I, I combated that was just to be the hardest working teacher in the school or try to be the hardest working teacher in the school um, to keep that job, you know, to keep that. Um, it was like a lifeline for me. That was my security. And I was saving a lot, but I still didn't feel safe. So um, having that second gap here after working in India, it really allowed me to, to see. Um, I met a lot of entrepreneurs. I ended up, I was passing through Bali. And I did a 10-day transformational retreat, and I fell in love with Bali and ended up staying there. I met a lot of people who lived there who were corporate dropouts from Europe and, and the U.S. And I saw, well, this is the life I want to leave, live, you know, it's surrounded by nature, having more time freedom, and creating um, something around a passion. And uh, so that gave me a new perspective. And it allowed me to kind of reevaluate my life. So I feel like these gap years, these mini retirements are so valuable. And I would encourage listeners to, you know, maybe it's not a whole year that you feel like you could take, but six months, a month, whatever you could afford to take. I feel like there is no better value in your life. Um, if you realize something or fast track um, yourself to a better life, it's totally worth it. Ooh, I am super inspired now because I'm 49. I quit my job six years ago and I have not taken any time off. And it's a little bit different for me because we have kids. So there's a routine and stuff around there. But I bought a house I'm working on. I have band-aids on my fingers right now for moving 50-pound retaining blocks all day and digging. What would you tell to someone to inspire them to take a gap year? And that might be a bad question because I think you've already inspired it. But 
How do you get Carl specifically to take a gap year? <laughs> How about? And, and what do you do with your time when you're on your gap year? Yeah, for me, I, I really value traveling with purpose. And I used to travel fast, you know, because I was just anxious and excited to see the whole world. And, you know, also, I think there was a little bit of like, I want to tell people I've been here. And so there was a, you know, check, 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 check. I've France and Italy and, you know, whatever. So I can say I've been to all these countries. But what I realized is the more slow I travel, the more I enjoy it. And I'm really able to sink into deep relationships with people. So, you know, if I'm just constantly moving, I'm constantly figuring out logistics and how do I get places and moving hotels and packing up my suitcase again and having these surface level conversations with people about where I'm from and what do I do for a living. And that gets really boring really fast for me. And I've seen another temple and another church. And so it loses its appeal very quickly. So I love my routine too. But uh, traveling slowly or immersing myself in one place really allows me to um, reflect and recharge. And so I guess, Carl, I would reflect on what do you really enjoy? And I do think there's a value in going somewhere different and in finding a routine there. And sometimes that takes a little time. And for me, community is also important. And I know you have, you know, in a great community in Longmont. Um, but what what made it special for me is discovering the community in Bali. So I'd been there dozens of times as a tourist, and I never scratched below the surface until I lived there and met the people who who have been there for years and and attended events that they went to and stopped doing the touristy things that I really discovered the value of Bali. So I guess I would encourage listeners to think about what they value and what community would nourish them. If they love surfing, finding a surfing community. If they love skiing, you know, finding a community of uh, other people who have time off. Uh, because I think a lot of people have already fired in the U.S., but they may be a little lonely and it can be isolating, you know, if you're living in a suburb somewhere in the U.S. But what I love about Bali is there's a lot of friends I have who have time freedom. And so they really get my lifestyle. And we we have a a strong sense of community. We're getting together a lot. And so I feel very nourished by that. One quick follow-up. Many fire people would classify mm -hmm. themselves as introverts. I think more a higher mm -hmm. percentage than the general population. How do you find community when you're in these new places? For me, it's attending classes. And that's what I love about Bali is there's so many opportunities to enrich myself every single day. You know, just one venue in Bali, uh, very close to where I live, they have 22 classes a day and there's a, there's multiple venues like that. So every day I wake up and there's, you know, there's a wealth of choices. You know, if I want to, whatever I want to do, you know, be it singing, dancing, woodworking, painting, um, you know, sound healing, meditation, yoga, um, authentic relating, nonviolent communication. There's so many opportunities circling. There's women's circles, men's circles, whatever. Um, so there, and, and also entrepreneurship courses, digital nomad, you know, anything. So what I love is there, there's so many opportunities for personal growth and professional growth. And I find meeting people in those kind of classes, um, leads to really deep relationships, you know, when you're finding people who are interested in similar things to you. So I feel, I feel like that's the best way is just getting involved in some of the activities. But, you know, like you, Coral, like I really, you know, I'm an extrovert when I hang out with fire people, but I'm an introvert a lot of the time. And, but I feel like I found my tribe in the U.S. with a fire community. But in Bali, I found my tribe uh, because a lot of people are very intentional with their life. They think outside the box. And so it's feel, I feel like it's easy for me to find friends there and for those relationships to go very deep, very quickly. Doug, I have to get my ass to Bali. I was looking at some of the pictures from Amy's retreat, and it looks great. Have you ever thought about going there? I, a little bit, but not uh, in a serious way, like eminently. But it looks like a cool place, and I know some folks in my entrepreneurship community, like they either live there or they visit often. So, are you, you're thinking about it pretty soon? Yeah, I think so. I, I won't go to this retreat, but maybe the next one, we have to work it out with kids, but I can just lock them in the basement and throw some food. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that, but 
Yeah. Uh, they're, they're almost self-sufficient that I can do stuff like that or leave them with their uncle Doug. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's in the, it's in the summer, right? Or when, when is the... It's the end of September, but it did oh. sell out really quick and I've got a, a wait list now. Um, so I know I will do another one. The demand is there and it's, and I love bringing people to Bali and just opening their eyes to, you know, what's possible in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the expat community there, but the Balinese people are amazing, such beautiful people. So it is a special place. And hey. and for me, I didn't feel like I had a home for 20 years in a way. You know, I like I loved all the places I lived in Asia, but, um, you know, rural Texas was no longer my home. And so um, and all the places I lived never felt like home. And so when I found Bali, it really, um, yeah, it was it was it was a beautiful thing <laughs> for me. What was the thing or things that made it feel like home? Was it, is it the community really? Absolutely. The community and the opportunity for, for growth. Definitely. Yeah. And how do you live there? Do you have a visa or do you have some kind of citizenship? How does that work? Right now I don't have a visa. I will have a work visa that will start right before my retreat starts. Um, but I go in on a visitor on arrival visa, a VOA. And it lasts for two months, and then I have to leave the country, which is quite easy because within a two-hour flight radius, there's a million amazing, not a million, but a lot of amazing places to visit. And I lived in Singapore for six years, so I go and visit friends. I lived in Bangkok for two years. I go and visit friends. Perth is three-hour flight radius. Um, my, my partner, who I met in Bali five years ago, um, which I was single for 13 years, so that was a, that was a blessing when I met him. Um, you know, he, he's from Australia, so we go and visit his family in Australia. So I find it kind of nice every two months to fly out and it's, you know, 150 bucks or whatever. I can fly to Vietnam as well. So it's kind of a nice opportunity to get some contrast and to take a little break and travel in the region. So is it one of those situations where you can like fly out and just fly back immediately if, if you want to, and then stay there for another two months? Exactly. Okay. And you can even fly back in the same day. Um, I don't usually do that. I usually use it as an opportunity to go and do something else for a little bit. But a lot of people do. They'll fly back in the same day. And you can also, you know, get a work visa or you can, there's other other opportunities, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to have to fly out every two months. Um, but I don't mind flying out occasionally. So it's fine sure. for me with a visitor on arrival. And it's cheap that way. I, yeah, I feel like I saw a mm -hmm. quick news clip that talked about maybe an entrepreneurship type visa or maybe it's the work visa but it was like generally i mean it ended up being like high net worth you're running a business and they're like yeah please come here is that something you're familiar with or i don't know all the details so no one no one <laughs> take this for exactly what i'm saying yeah i think they came up with the digital nomad they're talking about starting a digital nomad visa when you know it in indonesia um if you know, it takes a while for things to happen. So sometimes the government will advertise something, but it, it hasn't gone into the works yet. But I'm not positive about that. So I'd encourage listeners to look it up. Okay. And we, we mentioned it. So you will be having a retreat. We're going to come back to that. But when was your first FI, um, either retreat or a camp FI or whatever? What was your first thing that you went to? It was in October of 2021, as soon as I got back to the U.S. So I finally, you know, learning about the fire principles gave me the courage. And it took a lot of courage because I definitely had one more year syndrome, um, which I can speak about as well. Um, I went through, it's funny, a funny story. About that. But um, yeah, when I left my job finally in July of 2021, and part of that um, was my, my dad had a stroke. And he's 82 now. So I, I went, returned to the U.S. And the longest time I'd spent in the U.S. in 20 years. And I came to rural Texas um, to support him. And um, I went to all the fire events I could. I was home in the U.S. nine, like the six fire events during that time. Um, but yeah, the first one was Camp Fire Southwest. And I had an amazing time. And then I just signed up for all the Camp Fires I could attend. And I went to Amber Lee's Vent Talks as well. And I was so inspired by the community. You know, people are so generous with their time. They jumped on my spreadsheets with me. They counseled me through my money fears. They looked at my asset allocation. They talked to me about, you know, healthcare after fire. 
So I feel like all of those events, you know, if listeners haven't attended a campfire, an economy, or a fan talks, I would say, you know, go because it is an investment. And, you know, we can learn a lot from books and podcasts, but um, there's something about an in-person connection that just takes that learning to another level. And you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know um, a lot of things, but I met so many inspiring people um, that really changed you know, I got a job at a camp by. I'm, you know, I'm working part time. So, you know, all of the connections I've met has been so valuable for me. Yeah, these events are awesome. We met you for the first time at Economy uh, about a week ago, and I feel the way I look at these events is there's stuff going on, but all those events and things that are going on are kind of just an excuse to hang out in the hotel lobby or a, a hallway and meet other people. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I learned just as much from the participants as the speakers. Yep. And you mentioned the one-year syndrome or two-more-year syndrome. So talk about your experience with that. Yeah, um, thank you. I, you know, I loved international uh, teaching in Singapore and India, and I did that for 10 years. And then I took a one-year sabbatical in Bali, which I mentioned, which turned into two years. Um, I met my partner there and I was having the time of my life. Um, and I actually had, you know, a pretty good nest egg already, but I believed after spending for two years, I still had that scarcity mindset and no money coming in for two years. I went back to work and I'll tell you, going back to work after having the best life and turning my back on that best life, it was not a pretty picture. I fell flat on my face. (laughs) And uh, so I, I went to a job in Bangkok and I was saving, you know, $90,000 a year there. And it was like the golden handcuffs where I, um, I was miserable and I was waking up at three in the morning, anxious, working in the middle of the night, you know, again, feeling like, am I worthy of this job that so many people, you know, this, it was hard to get a job at that school and I didn't feel worthy. And so I was working, trying to work myself or to death really basically to prove my worth. So it was not healthy. And I moved my partner there. He loved Bali and, you know, he didn't really want to move to a big city, but I moved him there. I convinced him it was a great idea for us to go to Bangkok. And um, it was in that dark days where, I mean, I was going through depression. And um, that's when I found the fire movement. But again, it, it, it really took a while for those principles to take hold and for me really to be convinced that I was okay. So even though I was quite depressed and miserable and anxious and um, not doing well emotionally, and it was having a strain on my my relationship. And I'd been single for thirteen years, so I mean, I was even putting my relationship on the line for this for this paycheck. And um, even though I was miserable, I decided, you know, I'll renew my contract for another year. <laughs> um, and I signed up for a second year there, and um. I finally, you know, I really saw how unhappy I was and I went in and I, I, I decided to break contract. And I told my principal, even though I'd signed a contract, now that could like blacklist me from international teaching again. So it really scared me. But I told him, you know, I cannot work next year. I just feel like it's having too much of a strain on my mental well-being. Um, but then, you know, um, six months later, I basically went in again and asked for my job back. <laughs> Problem scarcity in here. Oh, and no. I got a major one year year syndrome and I worked, I did work that second year. So it, it was scary. You know, it was scary. Um, but after that second year and saving another, another 90,000, and then I think my dad's stroke and, you know, also learning more about the fire principles, then I finally left in July of 2021. Wow. And it's it's too bad they didn't actually put you on a blacklist. Then you couldn't have <laughs> gone back. <laughs> I guess they'll yeah. take anyone. Yes, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I, that that second year ended up being better, and you know, and I learned how to balance it more. And then the pandemic hit, and I was teaching online, and actually ended up teaching online from an island in Thailand, and so it it became more balanced. I mean, the pandemic wasn't good for the students, but for me, it. It helped pull me a little bit out of depression because I was balancing my life a little bit more. Um, Teaching from an island definitely made things a little more relaxing. And one crazy thing. So if I have the timeline right, so 2019, Mm -hmm. you kind of discover FI, right? 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
2021 in the fall, you go to your first event. And then here in 2023, you're running your own event. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just the timeline seems pretty impressive, but I mean, obviously you accelerated and and went to as many events as you could in a short time, really kind of immersed yourself in the community. So yeah, talk a little bit about what you put together and why. Yeah, I mean, I had the idea of running an event in Bali when I was in Bangkok. And, you know, during the pandemic, I think I was community starved during the pandemic. And I was hearing about Camp Vise on the podcast I was listening to. I heard Diana talking about economy and I thought, you know, Asia's my home. I want to build a fire community over here on this side of the world. And so I had that idea and I knew that Bali was my dream place. And how could I help other people to discover, you know, what I had discovered about how nice it was to live there. And so I had that idea back then. And then when I came to the U.S. and I really experienced Camp Fi and economy, that, you know, lit the fire under me even more to see the value of community and and what these kind of, these events are life-changing. They're transformational. And I really believe in in the power of that. So, yeah, I'm inspired to pay it forward uh, because I've received so much benefit from these events. Can you tell us about what happened or what will happen at, it's called Five Freedom Retreat, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, What's we'll have, like? oh my goodness. Yeah, we'll have, um, you know, inspiring speakers. Um, we've got a great community of people who are coming, very many savvy people who are very knowledgeable. So like I said, you know, uh, participants will learn a lot from the speakers, but they learn a lot from the conversations that they have around the pool. And at the beach and on our excursions, we're going to go to, you know, water, uh, traditional water temple blessing um, in Bali. We're going to go on rice terrace walks. We're going to have, you know, lunches with volcano views. And we're going to go to a, a check dance, which is a traditional dance where they walk on hot coals and they stick, you know, fire down their throat. <laughs> I mean, they do crazy things. So we're going to do some cultural things. Um, but, you know, I feel like the value is in community. And all those conversations and the bonding that's going to happen during the event and also after the event, because it's, you know, it's a five-day event, but then also, you know, people who aren't short on time, who don't have to get back to their job in Singapore or Perth, Australia, or wherever they live, you know, they can stick around. We're going to go down to the beach. We're going to stay at the Grand Hyatt Bali. If people have points, if they don't, they could stay at the Marriott, which is really close. Um, you know, it's just pay-as-you-go model after the retreat. Or people can, you know, just buy a room in a, a nearby hotel and we're going to hang out, a smaller group of people. So, you know, I feel like there's so much value during the retreat, you know, after the retreat. Some people are coming over for an entire month. And so they will, um, you know, they're going to really bond a lot. We're going to have a great time together. So it's it's during the retreat, but also um, all the activities that will take place, you know, after the retreat too. Yeah, I would not underestimate the value of these things. I was just thinking about some of the Chautauquas I've gone to and like I just we just saw Bob this past weekend at Economy and he's a great friend. I saw him again in New York and I met him at an FI retreat, the Chautauqua. And I probably see people I've met at these events multiple times per year and they're some of my best friends. I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, it's a really interesting like relationship that you can build, especially like as adults. We don't make friends in the same way we did when we were in college or obviously like grade school or whatever, but you end up hanging out for a retreat style uh, weekend or something. So you're around each other with a lot of idle time. So you can have like sort of longer conversations, not like at a happy hour where maybe you're around some group of people for maybe a couple hours and maybe you have a 10 minute conversation with them. It's kind of very superficial, very uh, surface level, but these retreats, you get to, um, you know, maybe room with someone that you don't know and you're having these long conversations over like breakfast and then breakfast the next day and then maybe some later night or something like that. And it's been interesting because I've just started going to these events roughly the same time as you, Amy. And yeah, I have friends now where I'm like, oh, I've had like more conversations with them recently than you know people that i've known for many years like that i've known in college or whatever so yeah very interesting way to make friends nowadays is old people 
Well, I feel like and the friendships go so deep, you know, like I was reflecting in economy this past weekend and then I did camp by immediately after the following weekend. <laughs> so I've had two weekends in a row of this. And I, I, some of my friends I've had only for 10 months, but we feel like we've been friends for years. You know, we're leaving WhatsApp voicemails together. Two of my friends did me last year in Asia. And I just, I've got so many memories with them. I took a road trip down from economy, down to camp for I with two guys. Um, so those relationships, yeah, they, they go really deep and they, they are lifelong friendships. Yeah. Well, one other thing I'll say about these events is I think like when you go to these things, if you have money in common, you probably have a whole bunch of other stuff. So you don't, you get right past the small talk and you can talk about shit that really matters. I've had people like multiple times come up to me and tell me their net worth within like two minutes of meeting them. I'm like, man, I, I, I just met you. This is, but I think that's pretty cool. Because they're comfortable and they feel like they can be open, which is, man, awesome. So as we're wrapping up here, um, can you tell us what a perfect day looks like? And we'll give you a couple paths, right? So let's say in in Bali, right? And then maybe mm -hmm. here when you're visiting in the U.S., you can give us two mm -hmm. different versions or how, however you want to shape it. Sure. Um, in Bali, I uh, know exactly what my perfect day looks like. Um, yeah, I have... You know, my partner and I have a beautiful um, home that we're renting. Uh, we pay a monthly rate, you know, in the rice paddies and two bedroom, two bath, you know, just a rice paddy view with the cranes flying over the rice pa uh, rice paddies, little ducks waddling in, in the rice paddies. So, super cute. So I make my coffee. I sit out on the porch. You know, I, I see this beautiful um, view of nature and I hear the sounds of the birds and the palm trees in the background. Um, I often go to hot yoga first thing in the morning. So um, after I've had my coffee, um, I come back, I teach, you know, an hour online. I'm coaching kids with ADHD. So um, that's kids in California after their school day, which is perfect for me. It's my morning in Bali. Um, I have the afternoon to meet up with friends um, in, a, in beautiful restaurants there and great food, very healthy, very affordable. Um, and then I'm, I'm always, I love to sing and I love to dance and I do a lot of that in Bali. So definitely in the evening, I'd go to ecstatic dance. I might do, um, singing, uh, some kind of singing event as well. And yeah, I, I usually go to bed a little bit early, but I love, I love watching the sunset, um, over the rice paddies as well. So that would be my perfect Bali day. And, um, definitely time with my partner as well. I don't want to leave him out. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. It wasn't supposed, but he's he's great, and we. It's nice that we both. He was also fired, but didn't know what fire was. Um, and he's been a huge blessing to me after being single for thirteen years. So, um, and then my perfect day in the U.S. would be, um, you know, spending time with my parents. And I've moved my my dad to the town where my mom lives, so I get to see them both in the same day. So that's such a blessing. And he's in assisted living center now, so. Um, having quality time with the people I care about. My mom has a great dog um, that I love, so I go running with the dog. And uh, my sister lives nearby, and I get to see her and my nephew. And you know, really just spending time with family and working on my passion project, which is you know getting ready for the Five Freedom Retreat, teaching kids um, online. That would be my perfect day in the U.S. And hanging out with fire friends. And my, my perfect day in the U.S. also might involve a campfire and economy. <laughs> that right. could be another perfect day. <laughs> yeah, when you get deep into the question, you really need a week because some people yeah. are like, I want a day alone. And then some yeah. people want to have a day alone and then have mm -hmm. a big community thing, plus be able to go on like a long hike or whatever, mm -hmm. go surfing all day or something like that. So that makes sense. Amy, where can people find you? They can find me at fivefreedomretreats with an S.com and they can sign up for the mailing list um, because it did sell out very quick this year. I am going to open a few more rooms in mid April um, the, at the hotel next door. I did find a few more rooms, but I'm keeping the, the event to a, a really reasonable size. So that's why I'm only opening a few rooms. Um, so they can get on the wait list if they want to know when those rooms are going to be released. Um, or they can be the first to know about the event next year um, so that they can make sure that they buy tickets early, I would say. Um, and on my contact page, they can actually sign up for a call with me if they're interested in talking about 
um, coming over to Bali, knowing more about the retreat, um, there's an opportunity to sign up for Cole or they can send me an email through the contact page. Cool. And a uh, quick note, how many people, what's the cap? Just curious on the size. With speakers, I will have 45, which will be a really intimate group for people to really get to know each other. Okay. So that's like a little smaller than a typical campfire, right? Exactly. Yeah. I talk to everyone. Yes. And there's something so valuable about a small group to really get to go deep with people. Awesome. Well, thanks, Amy. This was really fun. And hopefully someday we'll, Carl and I will go down to Bali. Check I would love it. I would love it. You guys are always welcome. We have plenty of time to get in shape. All this beach and pool talk <laughs> Man, it makes me nervous. We're very pasty, super white, pale. <laughs> yeah, you got healthy skin now. That's a good thing. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you guys for what you're doing in the world to create you know, financial literacy. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. What were you like in high school? In high school, I was, uh, I had a small group of friends. I worked a lot. I had two jobs. Um, and I was, yeah, I, I hung out with kind of the nerdy kids. Okay. Did you like um, it? I would say I liked it. Yeah, I was, I was very self-conscious. So I didn't, uh, I lacked a lot of confidence in trying out for a lot of things that I probably would have enjoyed. And so if I could go back and redo it again, I probably would have put myself out there a bit more. What's uh, one or two of those things? Uh, you know, I would have loved to get on stage and do more dramatic productions and, um, yeah, do, you know, musicals and that kind of thing. But I just never had that confidence. Yeah. Carl, what were you like in high school? Ooh. If you went to my high school reunion and asked 100 people, who I was, all that 99% of people would not know. I kind of just, uh, I had a pretty good core friend group that I'm really thankful for. Solid friends, but I was not outgoing, kind of shy, that confidence, similar to what you said, Amy. It, it was overall an okay experience, but yeah, I kind of slipped through the cracks, I would say. I didn't really try either. I wish I would have tried. Um, When I did try, like I aced organic chemistry, did really well in my studies in mm -hmm. university, but I wish I would have tried a little bit more in high school. Would you have um, tried out for like some sports or drama or whatever, like mathletes? Uh, I was a mathlete for a while. No sports. I have no coordination and I don't think I could sing or perform. So all that stuff is out. But yeah, more, more brainy endeavors, maybe Spanish club, more math. I, I wasn't in the math team for that long. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for me, I was uh, completely nerdy. Mm -hmm. I, I was actually a pretty good student and I um, had all the advanced classes except English. So I was like mediocre in that area, which turns out I think I just didn't connect with the teachers. I used to straight up blame the teachers, mm -hmm. but 
I mean, I think they, they didn't like, they didn't like me for some reason, which is probably a, a sign that it really wasn't their fault. It was me or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no sports. Although I played, I played like pickup basketball. Like I like to go to the gym and hang out and stuff, but yeah, I kind of, I kind of fit right in the, the middle. Like I was nerdy, but I was, I was okay. And then, um, I wanted to play basketball, but it wasn't good enough. So, so I just, I, I tried out a couple times. And then when I failed, I was like, oh, I'm not going to try out anymore. That's a waste of time. So I spent my time elsewhere. But I think, and, and I, I worked, um, I, I like cut grass. So I cut grass like all the time. Of course, not in the winter, but I cut grass like a lot and earned money that way. So I kept busy. I don't, I don't remember disliking it too much but it was nice to i could get good grades so i was able to do that so that was like fulfilling but i I maybe would have tried out for like cross country i would like individual sports not team sports but cross country maybe i don't know if i would have done like drama or something like that but maybe like debate to become a better speaker although i don't like arguing so i think i would probably just be bored of that so anyway so you mentioned basketball. Do you yeah. like to hang out in gymnasiums? I, yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> but I was going to say, Elizabeth and I got some basketballs at the rec center. I live super close to the rec center where Carl works out. And I was like, we got to play some basketball. Do you play? Uh, I'm pretty terrible. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to run now that I'm old. Like I jumped one time and uh, landed kind of hard, like, oh, uh, no. like this past weekend and my whole body like reverberated. I'm just, I'm not built for this anymore. I'm in my forties now. I'm not going to jump like that and like twist a thing I don't know exist. Yeah. You got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you uh, want to play? Um, I'll play horse with you or maybe yeah, yeah. a shorter version. By the way, the gymnasium comment was an airplane reference. Oh, I don't even know. I, I mean, I know airplane, but I don't remember the reference. Oh, do you like to hang out? Have you ever been in a Turkish prison? Uh, <laughs> like, I remember all the taglines, but I don't. Sorry, Sorry Amy. That's okay. No, this is entertaining for me. And I really relate to what you're saying there, because I was the same. I wasn't very good at sports, so I can totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. But yeah. the great thing with cross country is, like, you just show up and you run by mm-hmm. yourself and, like, yeah. don't get hurt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't have placed or anything, but. They want people out there running, so that's all right. Are you a runner, Amy? I was a runner, and I did run cross-country, and I was the slowest person oh, on yeah? the team. Yeah, and everybody always thought, you know, you're tall. You must be good at basketball and volleyball. Mm, not really. <laughs> no. Do you still I run? I do still run, but like you, it's like I'm, I'm in my 40s now. My knees are not as good as they used to be, so... I do run occasionally, but I prefer other types of exercise that are more low impact. I do a lot of hot yoga, which I love, um, but not running as often unless I'm home in the U.S. and I don't have access to to hot yoga in Amarillo, Texas, so then I'll jog here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just go outside. Yes. 